All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument with Nick Freitas. I am producer Hamilton, excited to bring today's episode to you. But yes, before we get started, Nick and Tina both, they are still in the great state of Florida enjoying the warmth and the weather and the freedom. But real quick, yes, they will be back with us this coming Tuesday to discuss the incredible news surrounding Roe v. Wade. We are going to discuss what the left has said, what the right has said, and the arguments you need to be making. Because, yes, you will come into contact with someone over the next few weeks who is on the other side of this debate. And we want you to be able to make a constructive, effective, and meaningful argument for what it is you believe. And so join us this coming Tuesday on Making the Argument, where we will discuss abortion and the conversation surrounding Roe v. Wade right now. And it's going to be an exciting one. But today, today on this episode, it's something special. Yes, Nick and Tina are not here in the studio with us, but I did have the opportunity to join Nick in Loudoun County for a conversation uh, sponsored by Americans for Prosperity on school choice. Yes, Nick has spoken about school choice at length on this show, but it, it honestly was fascinating. I, I really did enjoy it. And he said, he said, and I, I believe him, that most all of the problems that we are seeing within our public school system and public institutions could be solved by dollars following students, by school choice. And I think he's right. But what's also interesting is there was a parent in the crowd who's, who asked Nick, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but you'll hear it in the episode. How can we divert funds from large, massive school budgets like the Loudoun County School System? to resources which would actually go to educate our kids. Nick had a solution to that. He did. He had an answer to it. That's why I want you to stick around because this is an important conversation that needs to take place right now. So thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. I look forward to seeing you also this coming Tuesday. Don't forget you can always check out our episodes both on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, or on the YouTube channel at Nick Freitas. Drop a comment and let us know what you think. Thank you. No, um, <laughs> no, listen, first of all, thank you all very much for coming out here. I really appreciate the work that you're doing locally. Believe me, there's a lot of people all over the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, louding some rock stars right now. So, again, thank you very much. Um, so some of the issues that I, we were looking at going into 2020, we knew that the Senate was going to be a problem. <clears throat> and that's not just because the Senate is made up of a bunch of filthy aristocrats, right? It's because we knew that there wasn't the same ideology over in the Senate with respect to what we wanted to do on so many of the issues that were actually brought up in places like Loudoun County. So obviously I wanted to do some major tax reform things. Um, we wanted to do a lot of things with respect to expanding scope of practice on healthcare. Um, I wanted to get rid of an entire government agency called the ABC, but that didn't happen this year. I'm still, still working on it. Um, but one of the biggest ones for me, as you know, was it was the school choice issue. Because ultimately, uh, when, when I look at the situation that we're in right now with respect to our country, not just on education, but philosophically, the way people feel about their country, the way people feel about their own personal prospects, so much of that is rooted in the sort of education system that we have. And so as we were looking at things like you know, charter schools, as we were looking at education savings accounts, as we were looking at tax credits, um, so much of that was based off of the idea that we wanted a system that was going to fund students, not a system. And so much of that was brought up by the work that was done here in Loudoun County and exposing things that were going on that I think a lot of parents were never aware of. There was things going on in our elementary schools, in our middle schools, in our high schools that we assumed was going on at the sociology department in UC Berkeley. 
but we didn't think was going on here. Um, and because of you guys standing up and speaking about this and being willing to constantly come back and not being afraid of being intimidated, um, we, we were able to get more parents understanding what was going on in the state of their public school system. And we did go down to Richmond with the idea that, no, we're going to fundamentally change some of these things. We're not just going to try to polish things up and say, oh, look, we did something. We wanted to fundamentally change things. And in the House, we were able to get a lot of really good legislation on tax reform, on health care reform, on education reform. Unfortunately, the Senate was the place where a lot of those things uh, broke up. The one thing that we did on education I thought was fairly substantive and that I was actually excited about, and we got a, a couple of our colleagues to be able to come over and vote with us on on the Senate side, um, was some of the issues that were happening at Thomas Jefferson. And it was amazing because we, we had a bill that basically said, and this is going to sound really radical, this is going to sound really crazy stuff, right? Here it is. You're not allowed to discriminate on admissions based off of race. I know, right? Like crazy, mind-boggling stuff. Um, and of course, not wanting to discriminate based off of race made us racists, right? And um, it actually took one of the senators to actually stand up and say, look, this is not my opinion. A federal judge came down and said, you changed the admission standards in such a way as to specifically discriminate against Asian students. You can't do that. And, and we're all sitting there going like, that, yes, that is, that is correct. You are not supposed to do that. And one of the senators came back and said, well, if you want to go back to the 1950s in their opposition to this, right? So that, that's, what we're, that's what we're up against ideologically. Um, but those are some of the things that, that we were working on. Substantive tax reform, um, substantive regulatory reform. I, I don't think it, um, the bottom line is we have so many regulatory burdens that stand in the way of you being able to run a business, start a business, or just get certain skills so that you can you know, take care of yourself and your family. Um, the, the healthcare component, one of the things that COVID should have shown us all is that when you have this heavily centralized system with you know, Dr. Science in, at the federal government telling us all what we're supposed to do as opposed to providing genuine options for consumers, you don't get a good outcome. And then ultimately, of course, the education front as well. So we got some good things passed. We had a lot of things die in the Senate that we're frustrated about, but we'll be back. So we'll dive into a lot of that as we kind of go through the rest of the conversation tonight. And I know through the Q&A as well, um, you know, we went into the year, in 2021, we got involved in 13 House of Delegates races. Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to be successful in 10 of those, and in, in, in our minds, really bolster a policy majority in the House. And you mentioned a yep. number of the things that went through the House that we were excited to see. Obviously, we also jumped in and endorsed Governor Youngkin mm -hmm. uh, in his race, and we're successful in that. And so going into this year, we knew education was going to be very front of mind. And that's why mm -hmm. part of a new vision for the Old Dominion was all around ensuring a brighter future for our students. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some of the issues that you worked on two parts that we were really, really focused on going into 2022 um, to mixed success were around ensuring that we had the funding mm -hmm. to allow for parents to be able to uh, afford the access and that they would not have those opportunities based on zip code or financial situation. Yeah. And the second area was that understanding that students are all unique everyone learns in different ways and to mm -hmm. ensure that they're able to get credit for how it is that they learn, whether it's inside a classroom or outside. One bill that you sponsored this year was around ESAs. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit around what ESAs are, sure. what you would like to see for this year as we head into next year? So think, think of it, the education savings account. That's what an ESA is. So education savings account, for the, anybody that doesn't know, is the idea that right now money is allocated based off of federal, state, and local funds toward your child getting an education. Now, there's a couple of different ways that we can do that. The way that we currently do it is we say we take all that money and then we hand it off to a locality, usually with a lot of strings attached with respect to what they have to do, what they can't do, what they can do, et cetera. And then your local school board works in conjunction with your local board of supervisors in order to allocate that funding. Another way that you could do that is you could say, okay, we have a certain degree of money. Instead of handing it off to another government agency who will coordinate with another government agency in order to determine how it's spent, we're going to have those dollars follow the student wherever they go. And one of the things that I love about this, and, and I'm someone that, you know, when I grew up, I, I went to public school, and then I also went to like a really, really small, uh, like kind of family private school. Um, and then my kids have been in public school. We've also done homeschooling as well. So there, there's been a diversity there. But one of the things I, I've always loved about this concept of dollars following students 
is that so many of the arguments that we get into with respect to what education should look like is a direct result of politicians being the one that runs education, because ultimately that is who runs it. And if this is a question of your child will, by law, go to the school that we assign you based off of your address unless you can afford an alternative, well, then this is constantly going to be a political football of what your curriculum looks like, what the hours look like, what teacher pay looks like. You know, what, what sort of resources are available? What sort of resources are not available? What do we emphasize? It's always going to be a political football under a system in which the government controls. But the moment you empower individual parents to be able to get educational opportunities and access for their child that is unique to their child's individual needs and requirements, it, it's not just that all of a sudden we don't have this political football where we're screaming about what ideology we're cramming down children's throats. It's that we've now unleashed this marketplace of ideas in order to address unique and specific educational concerns and outcomes. It, it's no longer me telling you that, okay, well, hey, a majority vote, do we all want this sort of curriculum? Okay, well, I guess the 49% that didn't like that, sorry, you're stuck with it. It's like anything else within the marketplace. You get to find what works best for your child. And, and ESAs do that. It, it removes the politics from education in a very substantive way while at the same time expanding the marketplace of ideas for education. And then on top of all of that, you create a system that's actually going to reward teachers based off of their creativity, work ethic, and ingenuity as opposed to just their seniority. And so that's why I'm passionate about ESAs. We had like four, like Dave LaRock, he carried ESA legislation. He's been a champion of this for like a decade, by the way. Dave, Dave has really fought for this for a long time. Phil Scott had ESA legislation. I had ESA legislation. Um, I, I mean, I really think now more than ever is the time for us to be able to push this. But a big component of that is to be able to equip people to go out and make the argument because... I will tell you right now, the moment you have an ESA bill on the Education Committee, and I sit on the Education Committee, here's what you can expect. You can expect every single teacher's union. You can expect the superintendent's lobby. You can expect the, or you can expect the Virginia School Board Association. You can expect the Principals Association, all of them to show up in opposition to it. And they will tell you that if you want to give more choice, if you want to allow do public dollars to be able to follow students into the educational institutions that work best for them, then you're an enemy of public education. You're an enemy of teachers. That's the narrative they use. And part of, part of what I see my job, part of what AFP does, is equipping you with the arguments to go when you talk to people, when you talk to your neighbors that might be open to this idea, but, but don't want to be anti-teacher or anti-education. It's equipping to showing that this is, a, this, is a whole, this is a concept that is better for students, better for teachers. The only people it's not better for is politicians because we'll no longer have the power to control your children's education. And that should be something that we all like, regardless of where we might fall on the political spectrum. What sets AFP apart from a lot of other organizations is our really emphasis on bottom-up solutions. And as you mentioned, the benefit of having an ESA program or some other type of system that allows for funding to follow the students and isn't connected to a specific system is that it really does empower whatever your unique individual needs are and the funding for what that looks like. And as you mentioned, what's great about the way that we try to work in this space is that we want to work collaboratively with school boards and with teachers because we saw during the pandemic when you allowed opportunities like school pods and learning pods yeah. and different types of individualized education, teachers also benefit from that. You know, if you, you're looking at something where you want to make more money as a teacher mm -hmm. and you have the ability for, you know, 15 kids to have $10,000 towards their, their education, mm -hmm. you have 15 kids, that's half the average classroom, you're making 150 k a year. Mm -hmm. That is incredibly empowering for teachers to have the best educational opportunity for what that looks like mm -hmm. for them. Which is why another part, you know, obviously the funding is, is really critical for what we're working on in ESAs. As you mentioned, you had a bill this year, Philip Scott had a bill this year, mm -hmm. Dave Rock had a bill this year. There's a lot of opportunity to expand upon those, allow for universal ESAs, which we'd love to see mm -hmm. moving forward. And we need all of your help in this room to go ahead and work with Kay to come to the Capitol, to lobby your legislators and make sure that you have people who are voting in favor of that moving forward. But another big part of that is ensuring that also you have access to 
crediting what education looks like for everybody, whether mm-hmm. that's apprenticeship schools, whether mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. you know, if you learn piano from, from the grandma down the street versus in your education, if you're learning piano, you should get access mm-hmm. to credit for what that looks like. Yeah. What are some ways that we can look at the General Assembly for next year to ensure not just funding, but also that people are able to actually be empowered to learn in the ways that are unique for them? So I, I think this, this goes into kind of like the arguments that you have to make in a way that's going to be, let me put it this way. I was sitting in a conversation with the vice mayor of Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. I don't know if you're aware of this. Charlottesville is not exactly a bastion of conservative thought. (laughs) I'm sure this comes as a shock, right? Um, But I I was looking at him and I said, I want to run run an idea past you, a concept past you. I said, we both agree that education is critical, right? He goes, absolutely, education is critical. I said, what about food? Is having food critical? He kind of looks at me strange. He goes, well, yeah, of course. I said, okay. I said, well, food is critical, arguably more critical than education on some level, right? If you're starving to death, you probably aren't learning calculus. I said, let's do this. Let's have the government take over the grocery store industry. And here's what's going to happen. The government is going to set up 100,000 grocery stores all over the country, and then you're going to be assigned one based off of your address. Now, when you show up to that grocery store, you're not actually going to shop for your groceries. No, no, you're going to go in there and some sort of government board or governing body is going to determine what your grocery bag looks like based off of the federal food pyramid, right? And that's what they're going to assign. But look, don't worry. If you don't like something in your grocery bag, just get ready to go through a two, four to six year process, hiring a lobbyist and going through and determining what sort of new groceries can look like in your bag. And don't get me wrong, you're gonna have to fight against everybody else that wants something else. But that's what that process is gonna look like for changing what your groceries look like. Oh, by the way, none of the people working at the government grocery store are gonna be rewarded based off of creativity, ingenuity, work ethic, no, no, no. They'll just be rewarded based off of seniority. Does that sound like an establishment you would like to do business with? And he looks at me and goes, no. I said, that is exactly what we did with public education. You are assigned a government school based off of your address. When you go in there, you have very little say over the classes you take, the curriculum that you get. And if you want to change something, either because you want something because it would be better for your educational outcomes, or you just really don't like something that's being taught, get ready for a massive political battle as you attempt to try to achieve that. Oh, by the way, none of your teachers are rewarded. Based off of the actual end results that they produce, they're simply rewarded based off of their seniority. But I guarantee you this much, I guarantee you this much, if the government had taken over all the grocery stores and it had become the utter failure that it inevitably would have been, and somebody would have stood up and said, there's a better way to do this. You know what everybody would have said? You hate government grocery store employees. You don't want poor people to eat. But see, it's, it's absurd when we talk about it like this because we all know that we have public funds that go to people that need food. It's called WIC. It's called EBT. We all know that we have public funds that go to people that need health care. It's called Medicaid. It's called Medicare. When the government builds a road, it's not a government company that builds it. It's a private contractor. When we build some sort of system for the military, it's not a government agency. It's Northrop Grumman or Boeing. But guaranteed, when you talk about genuine school choice and dollars following students, how, you can't spend public dollars on a private service provider. Oh, except for WIC, except for Medicare, except for Medicaid, except for EBT, except for contractors. You can do it all there, but we can't do it in this one area of education. Why? Why is this the one area that so many people within the establishment are willing to fight for tooth and nail against parents having any sort of decision over how their kids are educated, or to what ends they're educated. Those are the questions that we need to start asking, and those are the examples we need to start using in order to get people to look at this and and hear these arguments that are coming from the regime, Right, that you're just anti-teacher, anti-education. You're none of those things. What this comes down to, and what I've experienced in my own life, is I have three children, 19, 16, and 14. All three of them have different, very different life goals with respect to what they want to accomplish. They have different strengths and weaknesses with respect to how they learn. All I want as a parent is to be able to get them the resources that they need for each one of them to be successful. That's all I want. 
And forgive me if I don't have a great deal of faith that the same institution that brought us the DMV <laughs> is going to be the best one to achieve that end state. Forgive me if I think it would be better to have a marketplace of ideas rather than a top-down government monopolistic process to control all this for me and to have my child constantly used as a political football for different unions. A big part of this battle comes with just convincing the person that lives next to you that there's nothing nefarious here. We're the only people in this debate that don't want to force an ideology down your child's throat. If you want to educate your child in a way that I might not necessarily agree with, I think you should be free to do that. I think you should be free to do it without my interference. And all I ask is that you respect the same for me. And if you're not willing to do that, there's a word for that. And it isn't compassion, it isn't diversity, it's authoritarianism. And that's not hyperbole. If you're honestly gonna tell a poor family, you will go to the government school we have assigned to you. And if you don't, because you can't afford an alternative because we've already taxed you to pay for this one, you're running in violation of truancy laws and then we're gonna treat you with utter contempt and potentially seek the DOJ on you? When you stand up and actually advocate for your child? I'm sorry, we have every single inch of the moral high ground on this issue and it's about time we start acting like it and because the people in this room did start acting like it in Loudoun County, that's the why we can even talk about ESAs in a relevant way that can actually become a reality in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So we didn't see as much as we would have liked to have seen this in no. 2022, but I do think there is a lot of silver lining. We've had more talks about education in the last six years that I've seen, for the most part, yeah. in terms of what this can look like. If you want to get involved, then you're obviously working with Kay. There's a lot of work that we can do between now and 2023 session, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of opportunity moving forward. Um, I know we'll get a lot of Q&A around education, so we're going to pivot quickly over to a couple of the yeah. other issues. We'll, we'll do questions here in a little bit. You mentioned healthcare is another area. Obviously, we prioritize healthcare under a personal option for Virginians, making sure that you had access to high quality, affordable healthcare uh, that works well for you and your healthcare provider. You mentioned a couple of different issues that we we're excited about. We've obviously worked on telemedicine for a yeah. number of years, scope of practice, drug primary care. What were some of the issues that you saw in healthcare this year that you were excited to see that moved forward as a result of the pandemic? So some of it was scope of practice. Um, some of the things that we worked over, and we had good bipartisan support for this, uh, things like nurse practitioners. Now, when, when COVID hit, obviously, there wasn't the same access to healthcare that we would have liked, especially given the demand for it that increased significantly during a global pandemic, go figure. And so what they started recognizing is that some of the rules and regulations that we had in place were restricting supply. No kidding, right? And so one of the solutions was they temporarily suspended COPN laws. Right, and this is some certificate of public need. Anybody here not, or anybody here know what COPN is? All right, cool, I get to look smart. All right, so, I get to fake it anyways. All right, so, certificate of public need essentially says that if somebody wants to come into your community and they want to provide a particular medical service, maybe it's additional MRIs, oh, thank you. Maybe it's additional uh, MRIs, et cetera. Not only do they have to get permission from the government to be able to provide you that service, they have to get permission from their competition in the environment. So the way I always explain it is, imagine you want to open a McDonald's, but before you can open the McDonald's, you have to get permission from Burger King. Chances are they're not going to be too keen, right? They're going to find some way that you don't have, that's not in the best public interest to do so. So, but interestingly enough, during COVID, they suspended the COPN rules. And so that's something that we've tried to work on is saying that, look, if we can all recognize that this is actually not good for increasing access, why do we have it in place when there's not a pandemic? The scope of practice was a, was a big one. Telemedicine was another big one because obviously with insurance laws, it's not as easy as I wanna to talk to my doctor in North Carolina because now we run into potential problems with you know, insurance laws in Virginia versus insurance laws in North Carolina. And so we've been trying to increase access. And here's one of the interesting arguments that we get into all the time uh, when it comes to the differences is the way to lower costs to have the government more involved or is the way to lower the cost to have government less involved. I will tell you right now, I don't see too many areas where the government gets involved where I think, wow, my gosh, I can't believe the efficiency, right? <laughs> that typically doesn't happen. And so one of the things AFP has been great about is, is finding ways that we can do things like expand scope of practice so that nurse practitioners are able to do things that they were doing all through the pandemic, 
without having to go through additional regulatory burdens. And we said that, look, we, we proved this works, so let's, let's let it continue to work. And, and we got a lot of pushback from some of the, because one of the big reasons why we, the reason you are told you have regulations is to protect consumers. The real reason why you have a lot of these regulations is to protect established industries that don't want to compete with other people. That, that's just the reality. I know that sounds really cynical, but seven years in the General Assembly, I can tell you it's absolutely true a lot of the time. So we were able to expand uh, scope of practice. That was really important. Um, we were able to, you know, again, do more with telemedicine. Um, look, here, here's the bottom line. There is only one way to increase access, lower costs, and increase quality all at the same time. There's only one way to do it. You have to increase supply. That's it. There's no magical thing where the government can, you know, they like to, the government love to engage in price fixing. Oh, we're going to set the price of insulin at this number. Okay, great. Now they just won't sell insulin in Virginia because they can sell it for more in North Carolina. Or, or we're just going to mandate that insurance companies have to cover this. Okay, well, now all of your insurance premiums just went up as a result of that because you made it illegal to sell insurance that doesn't cover the 47,000 things that politicians think it should cover. But once you start increasing supply, once you make it easier to provide medical care to people, that's when you get more consumer responsiveness. That's when you get more access. That's when you get more quality. How do I know that's true? Because it's true in every other sector of the economy. Nobody is talking about the car crisis or the TV crisis or the laptop crisis or the smartphone crisis. Why? Because the government isn't constantly interfering in that marketplace and telling people what they have to do or can't do. They allow it to be responsive to consumer demand, and the end result is you get better, faster, cheaper, more available. And so if we want that within medicine, then we're going to have to use more solutions that allow for the power of the free market to be able to respond to it. Yeah, a couple things that were really important there you mentioned. The sure. very first thing that governors did all across the country, right? Republican, Democrat, they repealed all the COPN. What did that look like in practice? Beds, right? They repealed all the limits on what beds were. Yep. Ventilators, medical technology, they allowed people to practice outside of the areas they typically practice mm -hmm. in. People were able to have temporary licenses. All of that genuinely increased access to care and saved lives. Mm -hmm. We're told all the time that these exist to keep us safe. We were in a literal pandemic and the first response was get rid of all of it. Yeah. Right? If it's safe enough for them, it's safe enough for everybody moving forward. And we saw that it was genuinely important for saving lives. In Virginia, because of people like Delegate Freitas, over the last couple of years had been implementing a number of things around telemedicine and scope of practice that allowed for us to be very nimble as the pandemic occurred and actually allowed for us to be a lot more prepared for what happened afterwards in a lot of states that hadn't started to move towards a more personal option. Well, real, real quick, let me, let me give you an example too of one of the things the AFP does on this that is so critical. Um, first of all, the, the work that they do, there's a, there's a lot of organizations out there that are competing for your time, competing for your resources, everything else. What AFP does that is very different is that their grassroots work is very, very effective, and then they, they actually come down to Richmond, right? There's some people that do really good grassroots, there's some people that do really good in Richmond. There's very, very few organizations that do really good both. And, and it's amazing, because when we're talking about some of the occupational licensing reform, which also comes into the scope of practice reform, um, I used this as an example once, because people were talking, well, how do we lower healthcare costs? I said, well, let me, let me give you an example of how the government makes your healthcare costs go up. They said, so way back in the day when I used to be in shape, I was a Green Beret. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I thought he'd be bigger. Anyway, um, so uh, you used to be Army Special Forces, couple combat tours and whatnot. On a Special Forces ODA, we had 18 Deltas. These were Special Forces medics. And a Special Forces medic is someone that went through all kinds of intensive, you know, abbreviated medical training so that they could go with us. And again, the way Green Berets operate, 12-man teams, we go to faraway lands, we do almost everything through, by, through, and with the indigenous population. So that medic is not just dealing with like combat trauma. They do veterinarian care, they do OBGYN, they do geriatrics, they do all this stuff, all right? That same Green Beret that can go over there and give your kid stitches, splint your kid's leg, deliver your baby, fix your goat, help grandpa, and oh, by the way, fix a sucking chest wound under fire while returning fire and calling a nine-line medevac. That guy can't come back to the United States and give you stitches because it would be a violation of federal and state law. Right, so don't tell me you're concerned about access to quality health care when we have somebody with that sort of skill set that can go to any other country in the world in a combat situation and provide that level of care and can't come back and provide basic medical care in the United States for fear of violating a litany 
of federal and state laws. So removing some of that, increasing access, is a key part to what AFP does. And they're thinking about these things on that level. And so many other organizations are not. They give like top level talking points without getting into the nitty gritty of what does that actually mean from a legislative perspective. So I know we have a lot of questions from the crowd, so we'll do one more final question for me and then we'll kick it over to everybody else. I filibuster, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, so, you know, you talked a little bit about the regulatory side. The, the third part of our A New Vision for the Old Dominion was all around ensuring that we were removing barriers to economic progress. Yeah. And we did a lot in Virginia over the last couple of years regarding regulatory reform, things like sandboxes, yeah. occupational licensing. Yeah. Unfortunately, what we are seeing at the federal level, though, yeah. is, oh is causing, I know an issue you've talked a lot about and that people are very front of mind on right now is the issue of inflation and specifically yeah. how Washington spending programs have contributed to that. Just some of your thoughts on what it is that you're seeing around inflation and, and what are, how are we able to work here in Virginia to, to combat that yeah. and just acknowledging that obviously there's a lot going on that we can't necessarily control. So I've never seen so many dumb comments coming from federal level politicians as I have when it comes to the issue of inflation. Apparently it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea that inflationary policy, which has been taking place for decades within the United States, suddenly became an issue when the Russians invaded Ukraine in February. All right, so that's ridiculous. The first thing to understand about inflation is that, one, this is the most bipartisan issue on the planet because both parties are guilty of inflation. Both parties are guilty of inflationary monetary policy. Inflation is, as Milton Freeman stated, at all times a monetary phenomenon. Right? When the government arbitrarily prints more money, as it has done, at significant rates that have been unseen in American history, right, the value of each individual dollar goes down. That's how inflation works. It's been working ever since the Yuan Dynasty 700 years ago, or in the 7th century in China. And in fact, if you want to learn more, we have a whole white minute on that. Anyway, <laughs> um, but that, that's the problem with inflation. So you see this general increase in prices across the board because of what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury is doing. Right? And, and no politician seems to have a great deal of, of incentive to try to fix it, because the only way you can fix it is you actually have to raise interest rates, cut government spending, and, and take that power away from the government to continue to just print more fiat currency. We can't do that at the state level. So what are we trying to do and what has AFP been trying to do? Well, part of it is, is cutting taxes because the more money we can get out of the hands of government and into the hands of the people that, you know, earned it <laughs> through productive labor within the economy, the better off it is, not just for the people that earn the money, but everybody else that's depending on the jobs, the investment, the small business creation that is created as a result of you being able to spend and invest the money that you earned. The other thing on the regulatory side, which I think is critical here, one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was, it was that, oh, we had, it, we had a lockdown. No, we had a selective lockdown. If you were a government-run ABC store, you got to stay open. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I, like, I, like my, I like my access to bourbon during regular times. So during a pandemic, it, yeah, it's like lifeblood. Anyway, but... But we also shouldn't have the ABC. Anyways, um, the, the, point, the point is, it was a selective lockdown. If you had good lobbyists, you didn't get locked down. And if you didn't, you did. And one of the things that AFP has worked with, and I've got to get a ton of credit to Delegate Mike Weber, um, because he carried the red tape reduction law several years ago. And we, we came back this year to try to update that. And one of the things that we're trying to do is we're, just, we're simply saying that if you're going to pass a new regulation, Maybe, just maybe, go look at the current books and see if that regulation already exists in some form. And if it does, maybe get rid of that one and replace it with this one, right? And, and this is not a crazy concept. It, it was originated in British Columbia. Again, not a bastion of conservative thought people, right? We're just trying to make it easier for you to be able to get out there and, and actually run a business. And not just run a business, but my daughter is in cosmetology school right now. So she's completed, by the way, ladies, wow, a lot of money on hair coloring and eye, eyelash extensions. I'm just saying, I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, but she's going through that process right now. She's completed certain stages of that process. She cannot legally do that for money for another six months until she graduates, even though she won't get another single class on it. Now, for my daughter, that doesn't matter as much, right? But for that single mom, right? And I grew up with a single mom. That, that could be the difference between paying the mortgage or not. Getting rid of those, those licenses that are, should not be required on that level. 
or getting rid of those regulations to make it easier to run your business. You know, doing these, these sandboxes where we, we tell people that are coming in and trying to innovate that, look, while you're innovating in this particular area, we're not going to push all these regulations while you're still trying to figure out what it is that you're actually going to accomplish or what sort of product is going to look like. That is critical for economic development. And trying to be the sort of place where we can encourage that sort of innovation is what that is about. And you would be shocked at the pushback we get. Because there's never a shortage. One of the most cynical lines that we have in Richmond is when you have a monopoly, keep it. And unfortunately, we have a lot of people that if they don't have a monopoly, they're trying to create one. And they're always trying to keep out competition. And a lot of times, it's very, very important interests that are trying to do that. And there's very few organizations that are coming down making a good moral and economic argument. And I want to emphasize the moral argument as well. This is really important. One of the reasons why we got our clocks cleaned is because a lot of times when we get up and talk about do this, it will make you richer, it seems shallow. I don't think it is, but it seems that way. Well, we're not just doing this because it makes it easier to run a business. We're doing this because one of the key components of what it means to be an American is the idea that I'm in control of my destiny, my future. I get to actually design my life and pursue happiness in accordance with my definition of it, not a politician's. And the economic freedom to be able to accomplish that is key to that. Freedom is not being able to elect the people that will make laws for you. Freedom is being able to make all of those thousands of individual decisions on a daily, weekly, and yearly basis for yourself and your family without the constant interference of politicians that think they know better. That's what it's really about when we talk about these sandboxes, when we talk about regulatory reform, when we talk about occupational licensing. It's not just about the money, although that's great. It really is about individual empowerment. And AFP has been with us every step of the way as we try to make that argument. So before Q&A, as Nick mentioned, what allows me to do the work that I do, what allows AFP to do the work that we do, is to have all of you in this room to help us out. What sets us apart from other lobbying groups is they have the gravitas, they have the relationships, they have the money, right? What really sets us apart is that we bring voters, constituents, key community leaders into the offices to talk with policy champions on how it is that they can pass policies that are going to genuinely impact not just you, but all Virginians. And so please work with Kay moving forward on how it is that you can work towards a new vision for the Old Dominion and work on really successful policies like removing barriers to economic progress, a personal option for healthcare, and a brighter future for our students, and work with legislators like Delegate Freitas who are happy to stand alongside us and work for those issues. But with that, we'll kick it over to Q&A. So who a first question? Wait, yeah. so like you know, here in Loudoun County, mm -hmm. um, our education, LCPS, goes before the Board of Supervisors and presents a budget. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a joke. It's become a joke. The superintendents don't even show up, yeah. you know, when, <laughs> when it comes to uh, present the budget. Williams, the superintendent before didn't, Ziegler didn't, his interim didn't show up this year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, and it sit there and say, this is what we want to spend it on. And they say, well, it doesn't really matter because we can do whatever we want with the money when we get it. Yep. And here we were again, giving them $52 million above their budget, you know, you know, a, a, 52 that they didn't need. They got money, federal money, as we all know, millions, yep. millions through the SSRP and our, and then taxpayer money, where the amount of what we're paying, you know, for here to live in Loudoun County is absurd. Mm -hmm. And then of course the education is not the quality for the dollar. But where do we ever get at the state level where there's real control over the money? They, they don't have to answer to a line item budget. So. Here's what I'll tell you. Um, the only way you fix something like that is when dollars follow students. And there, there's, a, there's a lot of people that have some issues with that. And they're like, well, no, we just, we just need better regulation at the local level to be able to allocate how resources go. OK. And so what you need to do is convince 50% plus one of the House of Delegates, oh, and the Senate, oh, and the governor to actually sign it. Right, in, in order to get some of that. And then even after all that's done, you still don't have any guarantee. In Idaho, right, and as red as it gets, Idaho, they passed all kinds of rules that said you cannot spend education dollars on this, this, and this. So that's what they passed. In law, state level, can't do it, violation. 
Undercover reporter goes in with hidden cameras and starts asking school administrators and teachers, so what are you doing about this? Oh, well, <laughs> this new law just passed, so we can't call it this, so we call it this. Yes. Yes. CRT. All right, so, so this idea, this idea that we're just going to get to a point where, gosh, if we just pass a good enough law, right, they're, they're going to do what we want. The best accountability, <laughs> period, the end, is you as a consumer getting to take your child and your dollars somewhere else when they're not meeting your needs. Anything other than that, anything other than that, where they're not accountable to you as a consumer, and they're always going to be able to work around it. And so the, the reason why we put so much emphasis on this idea of dollars following students instead of systems, fund students instead of systems, is because ultimately look at any government agency that you have to deal with. Go ahead and we can pass new laws about the DMV. We, we, can, we can pass new laws about all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know where you have to go to get your driver's license? You know where you have to go in order to get those things associated with the DMV? The DMV, there is no option. And at the end of the day, everybody working at the DMV knows this. Right? The only way that you get genuine accountability within any sort of consumer environment is if you have the ability to go somewhere else with your dollars. And so we, we can always come up with, with new ways that we can, we can try to manipulate the process. But the reason why I'm giving it to you this bluntly is because having worked there for seven years and having been a parent for 19 years, I, I can tell you it's the only way I see out of this. Well, what's the point? They're telling us year after year in recent years, they're down students. They're down students. They know they're going to be down students, so they shouldn't be getting more money. And what do we do? We give them that money mm -hmm. and then some. Yeah. At what point can they put something at least over the Board of Supervisors to have to be trained. They talk about So here's the other question that we have, right? And this is the part we have to look long-term with respect to what do we want to achieve? Because we can say right now that what we want is for the state to come in, because the state constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia gives a great deal of power to the local board of or to the local school boards and the locality of the board of supervisors with respect to education policy. Mm -hmm. Now, you can try to change that at the state level. You can pass a constitutional amendment changing that. And we would probably be happy with the results with the current setup. Are we going to be happy with the results with a different setup? Or are we going to want that local control back? See, if, if I have to choose between state control or local control, I'll pick local. But you want to know, you know what the most local option is? The individual. And that's where we're trying to put the controls in the hands of the individual parent. Because if this just becomes a shuffle between, I don't like what my locality is doing now, so now I want the state to do it. Okay, well now I don't like what the state's doing, so I want my locality to be able to control it. Take the power away from the politicians. Put it into the hands of the people that are actually sending their kids to these schools. Now, does that mean you're gonna get perfect results? No. It, we're talking about people, people. <laughs> there is no perfect, if you want perfection, go to church, right? <laughs> God offers perfection. We offer trade-offs. But from what I've seen through all of my study of this, from my experience with this, and, and this all goes back to Thomas Sowell, who, by the way, is the most brilliant person on the planet and not allowed to die, right? <laughs> Thomas Sowell once said, he goes, I can't think of a more dumb way to make decisions than put it into the hands of the people that pay no consequence for being wrong. And that's what this is about, is trying to put more decision-making power into the hands of people that have a vested interest in their child's education. And, and that's the only solution that I can give you that I think is going to make substantive difference. Yes, ma'am. I know that school choice sounds great and all, yeah. but when I was looking for a school for my child when she was homeschooled, yeah. the private school, I asked, hey, if Youngkin gives us school choice, would you take those that offer you know, from the government? And they said no, because they don't want the government involved. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't kind of help us no matter what. Number one, we should be first attacking, making sure the books don't have CRT and Well, they do yeah. have a S SEL yeah. in, embedded in the, into the schools. That's the number one thing we should be looking at and then going for school choice. I don't see where school choice would be first and not cleaning out it, it's the Idaho, it's the Idaho, uh, Idaho paradigm. Like, so I, I represent Culpeper, Madison, and Orange County, Virginia. Those are some pretty conservative counties. And the, the person that was running against me said, anybody that tells you that CRT is in our schools is lying to you and is probably a racist. That was the gist of what she was saying. 
And so I reached into my pocket and I pulled out the Virginia <laughs> Department of Education website. And I said, golly gee willikers, Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kindy. I've heard of these guys before, right? Like I said, no, and, and we actually had this debate on the floor of the House of Delegates. And Delegate Don Scott and I had, a, had this out a little bit, ended up on Hannity. <laughs> anyway, um, and what I said was, I said, here's what is so deceptive about what's going on. The claim is, is that because I can't go to my child's syllabus and say CRT 101, therefore it's not happening. But they passed cultural competency training as a condition of your licensure, which means that if teachers want to get their license or renew their license, they have to go through cultural competency training. Sounds benign. Who's running the cultural competency training? Oh, it's the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's Ibram X. Kendi. It's Robin D'Angelo. I said, this would be the equivalent of me requiring every single teacher to go through ethics training taught by the Catholic Church. And then coming back and being like, what do you mean Catholicism's in the classroom? There's no, there's no Catholicism 101 in the class. No, no, I just required all of your teachers to go through this worldview training. So we can do that, and we have. We've, we've tried to pass that legislation. We had it. Dave LaRock had it. And he argued on the floor. And I, we were sitting, I, he's my seatmate. We sat there on the floor and discussed this and debated this and talked about why it was important. And the only thing we put in that legislation was that basically you could not, you could not teach kids that they were somehow a part of an oppressed or oppressor class based off of their race or their gender. You can't teach racism, you can't teach sexism. That was an hour and a half floor debate that every single one of our colleagues on the other side voted against. Now, even if we got it all passed, then we run into the Idaho situation, right? We're okay, it's, you can no longer teach this. So they just shift the language. And then what do you do? Well, so again, your local private school might say, and this is, this is the whole supply and demand concept, right, that I always push on. Your local school might say, we would not take that because we don't want any sort of government strings attached. You know what? God bless you. I love that. That's great. Do that. It's the question of if all of a sudden billions of dollars are now available for education that were not available anymore because they were all earmarked toward a government monopolized system, you don't think anybody's going to come in to meet that demand? I guarantee you they will. I taught at a homeschool co-op. And I taught three topics. I taught Christian apologetics. I taught government. I taught economics. Right? And our students came in. It was a co-op. So it was one day a week. But now I, I went to that same co-op a while back with my son. And I walked in there. And one person was offering Latin. One person was talking global economics. Another one person was teaching blacksmithing. So, no, the, if all of a sudden we free up the money that is currently being funneled through a government monopolized system to consumers that can actually take it where they want, I guarantee you the supply will rise up to meet that demand. And the reason why I know that's true is because it happens everywhere else in the economy. And so even if the one school that is currently there would say no, there'd be something else that would say yes. And we've seen that in the states that have actually embraced this, whether it's West Virginia or, or of all places, Vermont, <laughs> the home of Bernie Sanders. Right, has one of the most robust school choice programs in the country. So I, all I would say is that I, I realize that if, as we look at the system as it currently exists, it becomes easy to get discouraged on like, how would this actually work? But when I talk about opening up that marketplace of ideas for something and, and allowing the supply to meet this, this new demand that has currently been hemmed in by the government, I, I am supremely confident that it would rise up to meet those demands. And, and one other thing, and then Hamilton, after this, I'm not allowed to give an answer longer than one minute. All right, he's got me, all right. Let's say you wanted to teach your kids CRT. Should I be able to use the coercive and violent power of government to compel you to not be able to do so? I would argue, no, I should not be able to do that. And that's where I go back to the, the fundamental difference here is that one side of this debate is saying, no, 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 I want the full power and authority to compel you to educate your child the way I think you should. And the other side is saying, I want you to be free to make your own decisions. And I want to stay on that side. I mean, the, the whole concept of the American experiment is provided you are not infringing on the property rights or liberty of somebody else, you should be able to free to do what you want. And, and that's, that's what I'm committed to. And so I, I don't, I've, I've had this conversation with students all the time where they'll come to me and say, Delegate Freitas, I want to do X, I, I want to solve global warming. I'm like, that's great. You can come up with a better solar panel. You can come up with a better electrical car. You could come up with a new, no, 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 Delegate Freitas, I want a law. 
oh, you want a law. Oh, okay, what you're really telling me is you want to punish someone for noncompliance. So how bad would you like to punish them? You want to take away their house? You want to take away their business? You want to take away their money? You want to take away their kids? We can lock them up. What, what would you like to do? I don't want to do any of that. Well, that's what the government does. That's the one unique thing about government. We get to use force in order to compel compliance. I'm sorry, I don't want a lot of decision-making power in the hands of such an organization. I would much rather a society where free people get to work in voluntary cooperation in order to achieve their end state. And when they agree, they work together and they cooperate. And when they disagree, they leave each other alone to try different things. They don't instantly run to a government official to try to compel someone else to do what they want. And that's what I want to get back to in all of our education, is that I'm not telling you what you can do or what you can't do. I just want you to be free. And you know what? I, I am supremely confident that, that reality will win in the end with respect to what is the best way to do this. And also understand that there will be different paths that are different for different students. And so that, that's another one of the reasons why I, I caution us about relying too much on government to try to solve a problem that ultimately should rest with us as parents. Tactically, is there a way legislation can be introduced to say no school system can be larger than X amount of students? No, and you wouldn't want it. Top down, yeah. It's no, and you, you wouldn't want it because there might be a situation where a, a particular school, people love it, it's great, it works really well, and, and parents are willing to drive their kids there. And, and I, I would never want to be in a position to tell a school like, oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're at 501 students, you can't do no, that. No, I mean, it's like Loudoun County yeah. too big. Well, but, but here's the question. Who, who gets, but who gets to decide what too big is for a student? Again, the moment, it, the moment it's politicians deciding what too big is, or too much is, or too this is, or too that is, right? I want you to decide. If you get to the point where you're like, you know what, I don't want my kid going to the school, it's too big. Great, you can make that decision. Appreciate it, and thank you, Delegate Freitas. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.